Wagner's stormy voyage on the Thetis didn't just inspire the story of Der Fliegende Holländer, it actually inspired the sound of the opera as well. Stay tuned to this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast to learn more about the profound effect of the seas on opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Later in life, Wagner would claim that the cries of the Thetis's crew directly inspired the opening lines of his opera Der Fliegende Holländer, when Dahlen's crew can be heard singing as her ship nears Sandwich. Whether you consider yourself a Wagnerian, or perhaps you're more drawn to the 20th century nature of Benjamin Britten's music, the sea has inspired some of opera's most creative works. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we're excited to welcome back Guild lecturer Desiree Mays for part two of Opera and the Sea. In part one, I spoke mainly of the sea. Now let's turn to other sources of water that are important in opera. Here we find rivers, great and small, from Ophelia's narrow river in Denmark, where she ends her life, to the Thames, the Seine, the Volga, and the Neva in St. Petersburg. There are a surprising number of deaths, both by suicide and murder, in rivers, ponds, lakes, and, of course, the sea. Lagoons, wells, and fountains cannot be left out. Massenet even presents us with a sea cave. Sea and river nymphs and spirits rise from the depths, hoping to find happiness on land, only to find they and their lovers are doomed. It is Wagner's great ring cycle that best addresses this topic of water set as it is on and under the surface of the mighty Rhine River, home of the gold, that much-desired element of Earth's treasure concealed in the watery depths and watched over by the Rhine maidens. So what of death and dying in water, by murder or suicide? First we have the jumpers. For me, one of the most poignant suicides of all is in a musical, Javert's suicide in the River Seine from Les Miserables, when the police chief comes to realize he can no longer live with his obsession with Jean Valjean, the man he had tracked all his life, for Jean Valjean is a good man, not a criminal. Javert stands on the Pont Neuf, struggling in his soul, and finally decides to jump into the Seine. You'll hear his cry as the music slowly spirals downwards. This is spectacular in performance, as dark, circling lights fill the stage, slowly drawing Javert to his death. Is he from heaven or from hell? And does he know that granting me my life today, this man has killed me? Even so... I am reaching, but I fall, and the stars are black and cold as I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold. 
I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There is nowhere I can turn. There is no way. Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitsense comes to a terrible end, jumping into the icy waters of the Volga River and taking her rival with her. She and her lover Sergei have been convicted of killing Lady Macbeth's husband, Zinovi, and they are being marched in the dead of winter to Siberia. Sergei has come to despise her and flirts with another convict, Sonietka. At last, unable to endure this cruelty any more, Catalina grabs Sonietka and both women fall into the freezing waters to their deaths. Here are the lines from the original Russian story by Nikolai Leskov, from which the opera libretto was derived. Katerina shuddered. Her errant gaze became fixed and wild, and then suddenly she swayed, and without moving her eyes from the dark waters, bent forward, seizing Sonietka by the legs, and with one lunge pulled her overboard. Katerina appeared on the top of a wave and then dived underneath. Sonietka was borne aloft on another wave and disappeared. She rose once more, raising her arms, but Katerina suddenly emerged almost to her waist and threw herself on Sonietka like a strong pike on a soft little perch. Neither appeared again. This is that moment in the opera at the very end. <laughs> Lady Macbeth was not the only jumper in opera. There are others, many of them from Slavic writers. The desperate Katya Kabanova in the opera of the same name by Lewis Janacek is unfaithful to the husband she doesn't love and persecuted by her mother-in-law. Ultimately, she throws herself into the Volga when her lover Boris tells her he is leaving. In another shocking opera, Yunufa, Janacek again confronts the mother-daughtership relationship. Yunufa has become pregnant out of marriage. Her mother, Kostanika, hides her away until after the baby is born. Once back in the village, Kostanika takes the baby and drowns it in the mill stream, telling the devastated Yunufa that she did it to save the family honor. Some time later, engaged to be married, the villagers find the body of the baby in the frozen stream. Yunufa claims it, and Kostanika owns up to the murder. This is one grisly tale. One less horrific death is that of Lisa in Tchaikovsky's The Queen of Spades. Again, this is a tale of a broken heart. 
Lisa has fallen in love with the unstable Hermann. Hermann, a gambler, is obsessed by the secret of Lisa's grandmother, the old countess. He murders the countess to get the secret of the winning cards from her, and then goes to meet Lisa, who waits for him by the Never River, wondering if he still loves her. When he finally appears, she says they should leave the city together, but Hermann refuses, replying he has learned the secret of the cards, Tri Carte, and he is on his way to the gambling house. This is part of their duet from the final act when Lisa realises she has lost him and slowly walks to the edge of the river and drowns herself. Tosca's jump into the Tiber from the top of the Castel Sant'Angelo in Rome is the most obvious suicide. When Tosca learns she has been betrayed by Scarpia, the chief of police, and that the bullets fired at Cavaradossi were all too real, she runs from the pursuing police and jumps over the parapet. Here is the end of the opera and Tosca's cry, Scarpia, avanti a Dio, Scarpia, we shall meet before God as she jumps. With this jump, there is a problem, however, for today there is a road directly beneath the Castel Sant'Angelo. Tosca would have had to have flown a little bit before falling into the Tiber, but maybe in those days a moat connected to the river and the castle. 
Ophelia in Ambroise Thomas' opera also chooses drowning in a river. When Hamlet rejects her, she realizes that his obsession with revenge has no place for her. In her madness, she imagines herself married to Hamlet and recalls the tale of a water nymph who lures away wandering men. In part of this mad scene, Natalie de Say sings Ophelia. suicides, you may have noticed, have all been women driven to death by unfaithful men for whatever reason. There is one man, however, who, driven to madness, kills himself in a garrison town in Germany. This is Wozzeck, in Orbenberg's disturbing opera. Having murdered Marie, the mother of his child, Wozzeck returns to the pond where he killed her. As the blood-red moon rises, Wozzeck wades deeper and deeper into the pond, believing himself to be covered in Marie's blood. He tries to wash it off until finally, crazed and desperate, he drowns. Klinghoffer is a contemporary political killing in which hijackers wheel the crippled Klinghoffer over the edge of the deck of a luxury liner to his death below. John Adams takes on a very contemporary struggle between Arabs and Jews in this telling, taking no sides with either the Palestinians or the Jews, the captain or the passengers, in this chilling work of our time. As discussed in my first opera in the Sea Talk, Benjamin Britten has his main protagonists, typically men, die by the sea. Billy Budd is hung from the yardarm, then buried at sea in a full royal naval burial, with the entire assembled crew of officers and men watching, while Peter Grimes, a man of the sea, reared by the sea, earning his living as a fisherman, is ultimately claimed by the sea when, in despair, he drowns himself in the cold North Sea waters, driven to suicide by an unrelenting community. Now to less dramatic forms of water. What about lagoons in opera? No less than three show up in Venice. Verdi's Attila, which deals with the founding of Venice, Death in Venice, Benjamin Britten's retelling of the Thomas Mann story, in which an elderly man falls in love from a distance with a beautiful boy on the beach of the Venetian Lido, with the sea lapping in the background. While in the tales of Hoffman, Giulietta sings her famous baccarole as she serenades Hoffman from a gondola on the Grand Canal, also in Venice. 
and then there are the fountains. In the Baroque opera as Asus and Galatea, when Galatea is killed, she turns her lover into a fountain. Another fountain is featured in Lucia di Lammermoor. In the first act, as Lucia awaits her lover in the woods, she tells how a young woman betrayed by love drowned in the fountain. Peleus and Melisande is a special case in an opera that includes a magic well, a sea cave, and the sea itself. Melisande is a mysterious, mythical creature whose affinity and connection with water is never truly explained. She is brought to life by Claude Debussy, who, let's not forget, is the composer of the enigmatic archetypal sea piece La Mer. Debussy said, quote, he wanted poetic texts that provide me with changing scenes varied in place and mood, where the characters submit to life and destiny. That certainly all happens in Peleus and Melisande. He struggled with composition, saying, I've been looking for music behind all the veils Melisande accumulates. I'm using the all-too-rare resource of silence as a means of expression. Debussy talked about the third scene outside the grotto. It tries to capture all that is mysterious in the night, as the distant sea pours out its troubles to the moon, and it is Peleus and Melisande who are slightly afraid to speak amid so much mystery. Peleus and Melisande is an impressionistic piece, with Debussy developing new methods of colour and light in his music. One should simply sit back and let the music flow, no hurry. The work is filled with hidden meanings, as Debussy touches on how things are beneath the surface, and he is not just describing the surface of the water here. The whole opera is set in a fantasy world. Melisande is discovered by the side of a well, trailing her fingers in the water. Goulot finds her there, but admits he is lost. They are both lost. There is a crown glittering in the water. It is Melisande's crown. Why is it there? Questions are never answered. Melisande goes to Goulot's castle and they are married. Then Pelias, Goulot's younger half-brother, shows up. The young pair spend much of their time together in the forest. They watch a ship set sail in the mist. She recognises it as the ship that brought her to this place. Later they are seen together by the well in the forest. It is a place of silence. They play like children by the well. Melisande throws her wedding ring in the air and it falls into the well. Foreboding strings tell of what lies ahead. Goulot notices her ring is missing and asks about it. She lies. She lost it on the beach, searching for shells, she tells him. With Pelias, she goes to search for the ring in a sea cave, to no avail, of course. The jealous Goulot orders Pelias not to see Melisande. She is frail and expecting a child. At last they meet by the well to say farewell, for Pelias is leaving. They meet embrace, acknowledge their love for one another, and kiss, as Gulo bursts in on them and kills Pelias with his sword. Elisandre returns to the castle, where she slowly wilts away, dying at last at the birth of her child. The water that holds these mysterious characters together is passive. The well where Melisande is discovered and where she later plays with Pelias, the same well where she would say goodbye to him, the sea cave, the beach from where they watch the ship disappear into the mist. 
The music in this opera is meditative, calm, impressionistic, one long flow of sound like water. We may not know from whence Melias came, but there are other water spirits who tell us sad tales of unrequited love. Rusaka by Dvorak is such a spirit, who, in a pact with the witch Jezibaba, is allowed to follow the man she loves onto land, if she agrees never to use her voice. She sings of her longing in the famous hymn to the moon. The prince is fascinated by the exquisite Rusaka, but senses a difference in her he doesn't understand. When another claims him, the distraught Rusaka returns to the river. When the prince comes to find her, she opens her arms to him. They kiss, and he meets death in her arms. But now a little music from Rusaka. These are the water nymphs playing together at the start of the opera. Listen to these water nymphs and then contrast them with Wagner's Rhine Maidens, two very different composers with very different interpretations of playing nymphs. There are many such tales of Undine in many operas, romantic tales of impossible loves which find fulfilment only in death, operas such as Undine by Lortzing and Undine by Henze, even a snippet from an unfinished opera by Tchaikovsky, whose tale tells of the water sprite who falls in love with the human prince, who ultimately dies for her as she is transformed into a fountain. Here is Undine's song, The Waterfall, My Uncle, sung by Maria Chagouch with its simple, repeated motif.
now to Richard Wagner. His wild seas of the mighty Rhine River, which is the focus of the ring. The great ring cycle starts out with Das Rheingold, the gold of the river Rhine and its attendant Rhine maidens. This composer, above all others, is most connected to water. His dramas play out on, beside and in water. Before the ring, however, Wagner wrote other operas about the sea. The Flegende Hollander, the Flying Dutchman, found one of its sources in an all-too-real perilous sea voyage Wagner and his wife Minna took when their ship bound for England was blown way off course north to the Norwegian fjords in violent storms. Minna and Richard feared for their lives. The superstitious sailors on board believed Wagner was cursed and the cause of the bad weather. The damned flying Dutchman, which Wagner wrote following this terrible experience, is doomed to sail these same seas until he is redeemed by a woman's love. Franz Lachner, conductor of an early production of the Flying Dutchman in Munich in 1864, said, The wind blows out at you wherever you open the score. The piece is imbued with the spirit of a storm-tossed sea from the opening bars of the overture, to the final curtain. Here are those opening bars. In Lohengrin, the great knight son of Parsifal arrives on the 10th century in Antwerp in answer to the call of a damsel in distress, Elsa von Brabant, for a champion to come to her aid. He arrives magically on a boat drawn by a swan. The knight comes ashore and bids farewell to the swan, who quietly swims away. When Elsa lets him down, he must leave. The swan returns, and the young boy is restored from the spell that bewitched him. He is Elsa's lost brother. Lohengrin steps into the boat, now pulled by a dove, and sails away. In the opera Passover there is both a swan and a lake, the lake where Amphotas is bathed to help soothe his ever-open wound. The mystical, elusive castle of the Knights of the Grail sits by the edge of this lake. Tristan und Isolde is a tale of the sea from the time Tristan goes across the Irish Sea to bring back the Princess Isolde as bride for his uncle King Mark. The whole first act of that opera is set on board ship, sailing from Ireland to Cornwall in the south of England. The fatal journey during which they fall in love with one another, having imbibed the death potion that turns out to be a love potion that does ultimately lead to death. 
The final act is set on the shores of the Normandy coast across the English Channel. As Tristan lies dying, he waits for a signal from Isolde's ship. She's coming to him. Cournival tells him that her ship has been sighted, quote, flying the flag of rejoicing at the masthead, cheerful and bright. But her ship and King Mark's ship following her arrive too late, and Tristan dies in Isolde's arms when she runs ashore to his side. But it is the River Rhine in the Ring that is the constant that winds its way through sixteen hours of the full cycle, ever-present, ever-ready to rerun the tale with each new production. Wagner suggests in the very opening bars of Das Rheingold that life emerged out of the depths. As we sit in the darkness of the theatre, a single note is heard coming out of the primal darkness, making its way into consciousness. We leave our everyday lives outside as we are submerged, hypnotised almost by these opening chords, and are led to a formless place that is serene, solitary, unchanging, infinite and eternally present. There's no sound, no words, no music, no voices, until the E-flat chord suggests the first stirrings of life. The single note from the double bass develops into an arpeggio as the horns pick up the sound. The violins join in in an unmistakable, rippling movement that is the waters of the Rhine. The ring cycle has begun once more. As T.S. Eliot put it, In my beginning is my end, and my end in my beginning. Here is part of the prelude. This is an astonishing opening by any standards. But then, just as we are well and truly hooked by the sound and the darkness, things take on some semblance of normal as light comes into being, and we see the Rhine maidens swimming around in the water, playful and innocent. 
Orberic, an ugly dwarf, appears in the depths and tries to join their game. He wants to capture one of them, but they make fun of him. Then an amazing apparition takes shape. In Wagner's words, quote, An increasingly bright light makes its way from above, gradually kindling on a high point of the central rock, a dazzling, brightly beaming gleam of gold. The sisters greet the gold. One of the sisters brags about how the world's wealth can be won by a man who, seizing the gold, fashions a ring out of it, making him lord of the gold. They also reveal that in order to win the gold, he who seeks it must renounce love. The rejected Orberic swears to do just that, utters the curse and makes off with the gold to the Rhine Maiden's horror. Here are the Rhine Maidens at play before Orberic arrives. At the end of Das Rheingold, the Rhine maidens emerge once more at the very end of the first opera as Wotan is leading the guards into Valhalla. They plead for the return of their gold. Wotan pauses but laughs at them before moving on. The sisters sing the phrase we recognize and hear over and over again during the course of the ring. Rheingold, Rheingold, shining gold, for your true radiance we are mourning. The grieving Rhine maidens disappear as Das Rheingold ends, singing, Goodness and truth dwell but in the waters, false and base all those who dwell up above, as the gods cross the bridge to Valhalla.
We do not see the Rhine maidens again until the final opera of the four in the cycle in Götterdämmerung. Siegfried and Brunhilde, having discovered one another, have fallen passionately in love, but now it is time for Siegfried to set out on his adventures once more. He leaves Brunhilde on her rock with the ring as a token of his love for her. He is still oblivious about its history and the curse. He makes his way on Grania, Brunhilde's horse, to the Rhine. He journeys on the waters of the Rhine, leaving the world of myth behind and entering the world of humans. Siegfried arrives at the hall of the Gibichungs on the banks of the river. There he is bewitched by Gutrune, who falls in love and marries her. He deceives Brunhilde into following him down the mountain so that she may be married to Gunther, Gutrune's brother, the lord of Gibichung Hall. In the course of this abduction, Siegfried tears the ring from Brunhilde's hand. This all culminates in disaster, of course. In the final act of Götterdämmerung, the Rhine maidens wait in the waters of the Rhine for Siegfried, who is out hunting. They call to him, flirt with him, asking him to give them the ring which gleams on his finger. Siegfried is enchanted by the maidens and resolves to give them the ring. They tell him solemnly he should guard it well until he discovers what ill fortune it brings, for Siegfried knows nothing of the curse. They warn him he will die that very day if he does not give up the ring. Siegfried refuses to be threatened and strides off, keeping the ring on his hand. As he leaves the Rhine maiden foretell of a woman who will inherit the ring and return it to them that very day, Siegfried simply laughs. Here is Siegfried announced by his horn arriving at the side of the Rhine and the Rhine maiden's plea to return the ring. Siegfried is slain as foretold and brought back to Gibichung Hall. Mists rise from the Rhine accompanying his final journey. All at the hall are assembled, gathered around the funeral bier, Gutrune weeping, Brunhilde standing strong near her beloved Siegfried. When the evil Hagen attempts to take the ring from Siegfried's hand, the dead man's hand rises and Hagen falls back in horror as Brunhilde steps forward and takes the ring, for she knows now what she must do. 
She orders a funeral pyre be built and explains she will return the ring to the Rhine Maidens after it has been cleansed by fire. She joins Siegfried in death as the fire engulfs the hall and even Valhalla far beyond. The terrified people watch the mighty waters of the Rhine rise up and flood the fire. The Rhine maidens swim forward to reclaim the ring and return to the waters as the hall crashes in ruins and a fiery glow is seen in the distance as Valhalla burns and the age of the gods comes to an end. While the Rhine maidens sing happily of their joy at the return of the gold as the waters of the Rhine flood the stage. And that's the ring from start to finish. These are just a few of the many, many operas I found that include water. What a pervasive source water is for so many composers. The sea, lakes, rivers in all their moods, from calm to angry to deadly, mirroring the moods of the protagonists in the operas. So I hope you have enjoyed these two podcasts and our journey about opera and the sea. And I hope to see you at opera somewhere soon. That was lecturer Desiree Mays investigating the many ways in which the seas have served as an inspiration for many of opera's greatest works. For more information about online courses and learning opportunities at the Met Opera Guild, be sure to visit www.metguild.org. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.